An MMA icon, former UFC heavyweight and light heavyweight champion, movie star, PFL commentator. There is nothing that this man can't do. The natural Randy Couture touches back down on Submission Radio. Randy, it's an honor to have you back on the show. Thanks. It's good to be back. Yeah, man. Captain America, always welcome here. The pleasure is all ours. We see you've been busy, man. You had a couple of movies come out last year. You had Alpha Code and Final Kill with uh, Billy Zane and Danny Trejo. And now you're the lead in a new movie called Blowback, which is in uh, post-production set to come out uh, next year. How's the Hollywood life treating you, man? Yeah, I mean, it's been good. Obviously, not much happened in 2020. I think I I played one small role as myself in in a film about our uh, our veteran program uh, that my buddy Nate Boyer wrote, and that was fun. But other than that, I didn't work in 2020 at all. Feels like the floodgates have opened here in, in February 2021. I've done three movies in a row and back to commentating for the PFL. Obviously, the third season is in full swing. Um, getting ready to... Uh, head back over to Europe and, and start filming Expendables 4 here in October. So very excited that that's finally coming back on the docket. Well, it's Expendables 4. That's happening finally. Um, yeah. You know, it's an interesting thing with Expendables because it's like uh, been around now for quite some time. Break it down for us at this stage as you go into number four. What's it feel like? Because I imagine the first one you would be like, whoa, I'm in this crazy cast of you know, huge stars but by this one it's like a family like you guys are kind of like a action version of fast and the furious you know you guys have the whole family dynamic but legitimately yeah. you know it's legitimate between you guys break it down for well, us what's it feel like well they they seem to try and one-up themselves every time we put a new episode together uh, i think there were what 16 guys in the uh second expendables and uh, a whole bunch more in the third Expendables as well. So we're kind of breaking this fourth one back down to almost the original crew. Uh, Wesley Snipes will be back. Uh, Antonio Banderas is back. Dolph Lundgren's back. Jason Statham, of course, and Toll Road, myself. Uh, um, Stallone, of course, is is obviously back. Uh, but that's about it, honestly. So it's going to be a fun one. To, you know, it's like every one of these scripts. I read the script and I'm like, how in the hell are we going to do that? <laughs> it's so crazy. But uh, we managed to pull it off. So I'm um, looking forward to it. Because I, I read somewhere that apparently it was written into like a TV show and it was being shopped around for a bunch of networks. And I think that was like a few years ago. So it's just going to stay as a movie or are you guys going into a TV show as well? I haven't heard the, the TV show thing. I know we talked about, after the first one, about a little spinoff with, with uh, me, Terry, and Dolph, uh, but it never came to fruition. There's also been a lot of rumors about a, a female version, mm. uh, the Expendables, which, again, uh, has, has never come to pass. So, you know, it's like anything like that. I think there's a lot of rumors out there, but nobody has it a real information Expendables. I like. I think I like the original cast uh, as it is. I'm just. I'm just saying that. Uh, did you, <laughs> Terry Crews? Is he going to be back in the Expendables four? Uh, no, I don't believe Bruce is back. I think uh, that ship sailed uh, with. Uh, I think it was three. Yeah. Uh, that he kind of priced himself out, from what I hear. Uh, I think he had Reds. He was getting ready to re to do Reds when three came on board. And, and he kind of priced himself out. And, and I think that's where Harrison Ford got the nod to, to kind of fill those shoes uh, as our CIA contact in the film from then on. 
Damn, he's yeah. Terry Crews making that uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine money. Um, <laughs> I was gonna say though, <laughs> who, who's like? I guess it's not so much a shock because there's so many martial artists on set. But who's kind of shocked you with maybe their martial arts knowledge or their martial arts uh, prowess? If you're out of the equation, who do you think's at the top of the list as far as uh, you know one of the toughest men on set? Well, I think Dolph is, is the only other guy that had any real combative sports experience. Obviously, he did Kyokushin Karate and competed in that uh, for a long, long time. In fact, I think he was still competing in that uh, when we shot Expendables 3. And he's a big guy, six foot four, very athletic, uh, long, rangy guy. Uh, I think of, of all the guys, he was the one that, that had the real fighting experience. Uh, but each and every guy was good at, the, you know, at their own thing. Terry Crews is an amazing physical specimen obviously in a you know, professional football player. Jason Statham has, has an Olympic caliber diving background and has mm. transferred that into a pretty amazing martial arts is certainly for the film, um, for the film world and probably one of the biggest action stars in the, in the world right now. So uh, it's a great group of guys. It, it feels like old home week when we get back together and start suiting up to go shoot again. Yeah, I'm not trying to stir the pot here and make you say something bad about a legend, but like, I wonder, um, someone like Bruce Lee, right? Who obviously icon when it comes to martial arts. I loved Bruce Lee as a kid. I remember watching like a game of death and stuff with my dad as a kid. Um, but we, where do you, where do you look at him as, I guess, not so much the legacy that he's carved out, but like you're on set, you know, you're a multiple time UFC champion, you've done it and you're, you're around guys that have also competed, but then you've got Bruce Lee, who's an icon, but hasn't had that competing experience. If we're talking like fantasy matchups and things like that, how well do you think Bruce would do in an actual practical scenario? Well, I think that's a, a great question and an interesting question. I mean, in my opinion, he, he was literally the first, the first mixed martial artist, right? I mean, he got a lot of heat for, uh, kind of going against the grain, stepping outside of traditional martial arts boundaries and, and breaking down some of those barriers, cross training. I mean, he incorporated wrestling technique, uh, all different styles of technique. And the people in, in Wushu and, and Kung Fu weren't too keen on him kind of, kind of breaking down some of those walls that existed at that time. So in a lot of ways, he's the original mixed martial artist. Uh, it would have been interesting to see how he competed in today's MMA. Obviously, I think he would have been around 135 or 145 pounds. He wasn't a big guy, uh, but he was certainly an amazing martial artist. Uh, and I think we got to you know, see that in some of the footage from him doing demonstrations and teaching seminars. And then obviously he was on full display as the Green Hornet and, and many of the other martial arts characters he played in movies. Yeah, him, Judo, Gene LaBelle. I mean, I know Chuck Norris would have a few stories about him. I don't know if he let loose when you guys were shooting together. But um, I think it's also one of those things with uh, Bruce where it's like he was there at the very beginning. So it would be hard to imagine how he would do with someone like yourself where, you know, you're in an evolution, you know, so many new things that he wouldn't know. But it was fascinating to see some of the stuff that he brought together in his movies to sort of begin that transition. I was going to ask you, man, another tough guy and another guy with a crazy life story that you worked with was Der Danny Trejo. We mentioned it before. And I'm curious because he had that book out that he put out where he spoke about his life. The guy has been through some unbelievable stories and has really taught a lot of young people and from his lessons. What's it like hanging out with Machete when you guys were shooting Final Kill? Uh, well, 
you know, when we shot that film, we were never in any scenes together. So unfortunately, I was never on set with him. I never got to meet him in person. Um, I know we were in the same movie, but the way it worked out and, and the character that I played, I, I, I never actually got to hang out with him and I've never met him. So uh, I like what he's doing. I like that he's stepping up, using his hardships as an example for other people and how to overcome and how to be resilient and, and, and you know, keep embracing the grind and push on through. Um, I think that's a great thing that he's doing. It's funny as well, because at this point, you've been acting in movies and doing appearances since that first appearance in the Jet Li classic, Cradle to the Grave, which was yeah. back in 2003. How does it feel to actually be in the acting business for almost 20 years now? I think at, at one point, it's going to end up being that you're in the acting business almost as much as your martial arts career if things keep going the way that they're going. Yeah, I, I think I've surpassed uh, the 14 years uh in, in you know fighting uh with, with acting now uh that was certainly a, a unique experience you know me chuck and tito always all being in those underground fight scenes in that movie uh you know and that was back when chuck and tito wouldn't actually fight each other uh for whatever reason and they had them fight in the film which i thought was hysterical but uh yeah it feels like forever ago it almost feels like a different life uh I've had so many amazing opportunities. Uh, certainly, uh, the Universal property, uh, Scorpion King 2, was a big step up for me. And then after that, Expendables 1 kind of raised the bar and, and opened a lot of doors as well. And here we are going on Expendables 4. So I think I've done 60 feature films now, and that's not counting any of the reality show TV stuff or any of that other stuff. So it's been an amazing journey for sure. Dude, it's been an amazing journey for sure. And also, Cradle to the Grave in 2003, I think your name on the call sheet was Cage Fighter 8. And in 2021, <laughs> you've got a, you've got movies with your face on the poster and the main thing says Randy Couture. How crazy is that? Cage yeah, Fighter 8. Yeah. Yeah. Cage Fighter yeah. 8. Jesus. We'll introduce you as Cage Fighter 8 next time on the show. <laughs> Cage Fighter 8. I think you come, it, it's like the audacity to introduce Randy Couture or like to put, you know, your name is Cage Fighter 8. At uh, least put him as number one. Yeah, at least number, number one. Who are the other seven guys <laughs> who made the cut? <laughs> but I was going to ask, how, how much do you still watch fights? And more specifically. Oh, you know, I, I still watch fights. Certainly I'm involved in the PFL and yeah. commentating for that. Uh, and studying each and every one of those fighters to try and come up with something intelligent to say about them when they're fighting. Hmm. Um, obviously still involved at, at Extreme Couture, and we've got an amazing team of guys and gals in there right now uh, that are doing a great job and, and representing us almost every weekend in one of the promotions in this sport. So when one of those guys or gals are fighting, I'm trying to tune in and watch those folks fight. Uh, obviously, we've got Taylor Gordado coming up in the PFL in the semifinals, hoping to get the nod and get get past Pacheco to get into the finals for the PFL. Uh, we just saw uh, you know, Nagano win, Misha Tate coming back and winning her first fight out in, in almost five years. Mm. Uh, we had a great weekend last year. I think we had four fighters on between the Bellator card and the UFC card that, that all did very, very well. So uh, things are firing at Extreme Couture. And doing great, and Ryan's doing a great job running the ship. Uh, you know, I signed the gym over to him last year, and then two weeks later, we had to close because of COVID. So, <laughs> no. def definitely scratching my head on that one. But uh, he's done a great job in pivoting 
you know, meeting the requirements uh, by the government here in, in the state of Nevada and and the gym is doing very, very well. Yeah, you mentioned Ngannou, and that's the crazy thing. Like, in theory, he should be fighting or, or a part of this event this weekend. Instead, you've got Derek Lewis versus Cyril Garn for the interim heavyweight title, your old division. And, um, you know, it, it's crazy because he just won the fight, uh, the, the title a few months ago. It looks like the UFC wanted him to fight uh, in August, and I think he wasn't ready until, say, September. So in comes this interim belt, and obviously kind of reminds us of your situation to a degree in 2007 when they introduced the interim belt. Um, and, you know, you had Frank Mir and um, Nog fighting for the belt. Uh, I'm just wondering, you know, how many similarities you see between those two situations? Well, I, you know, obviously I fought for an interim title uh, in the first fight against Chuck Liddell. Yeah. Uh, Chuck and Tito uh, wouldn't compete with each other. They were going to try and strip Tito of the, of the title at that time. And so they had me and Chuck fight for the interim championship. That might have been one of the first interim championships out there it's a ploy in my opinion i think they're trying to find a way to to use a title fight as a marketing tool to get more eyeballs and more pay-per-views um i think it's a disservice to francis but you know it is what it is francis is uh a, an amazing guy uh one of the most humble athletes and most talented athletes that i've been around so he'll work it out things are going to be just fine you know pretty tough to overlook a guy that that that, that is that talented that amazing so um but yeah I, I just think the interim championship thing that they're creating it's kind of when they don't get their way they're all right we'll we'll, we'll make this interim title and and then you can sort it out later what do you think is like the the criteria for interim belts right because people kind of get annoyed when they see interim title and there are times where it makes sense and people are like all right yeah fair enough like you know you, you think of like say uh, you know Cain Velasquez being out for a long time or like Dominic Cruz being out for a long time or you know like your situation in your mind if, you, if you're you know running a company when when should the interim belt actually be a factor I, I think in the case of injury uh, especially when there's an injury that's going to take a significant amount of time, nine months, maybe a year to heal up. You know, uh, I think then that's a situation where an interim title makes sense to me. And, you know, that guy can't do it. He's not going to be able to defend his title for, you know, nine months, a year from now, hopefully. Uh, then create an, an interim championship and let the weight class carry on and not suspend it basically in animation until everybody's healthy and ready to go. Uh, I think a lot of the rest of it is, is honestly just semantics. It's, it's a way to market fights and, and create, try to create a little more hype and interest in a fight. Yeah, well, you've got like, for example, Francis winning it a few months ago, and then the UFC signed this deal with the Toyota Center in Houston, kind of, you know, guaranteeing the multiple events. And I think it, it seems like Derek Lewis being the hometown guy, they were like, you know, we need a title for this event. They wanted Francis. I think he wasn't ready until September. So they went, all right, you know what? We'll just throw a belt on randomly here, and that's going to be it. But do you also think there's an element where, you know, they're trying to sort of lock Francis into fighting the winner here next? Because it seems like Francis wanted to fight John Jones and John Jones wanted to fight Francis. There's a bit of public negotiation yeah. uh, for that. But do you think this belt kind of, you know, locks Francis into the, uh, to fighting the winner here? I think that you're absolutely correct. I think that is part of the ploy, uh, creating an interim title. And, you know, when Francis still holds the title, and now you know they want to. They're, they're going to want to force that, you know, create that unification fight, and and have Francis fight Derek. I, I don't think 
uh, Francis is worried about fighting Derek, but I think the John Jones fight would have been a much bigger fight for the fans and for everybody involved. You know, and I think when you start chirping about money, which both John Jones and Francis have done, and you, you have guys like, you know, Jake Paul, Logan Paul actually shining a flashlight on the disparaging difference between MMA and boxing as well. Um, you know, Dana's one of those guys. He's going to dig his heels in and he's going to find a way to make it happen the way he wants it to happen. Obviously, you mentioned how Francis is around the gym. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to speak to him about this or not, but what would your advice be to him now that he's in this sort of tricky situation? And is a part of you surprised that fighters are still in the same situations kind of that you were in 14 years later? Or is it kind of coming as a no surprise to you? Well, I, you know, I think the more and more guys like John Jones and Francis that step up and chirp, step up and say, hey, this isn't right. Why is it that I'm making way more money in this one boxing match than I've ever made in my MMA career and kind of pointing out the disparaging differences in pay between the two sports? Um, you know, I don't ever think that's a bad thing. I think you, you have to stick to your guns. You have to do what's best for you and your fight career. That being said, if I'm Francis and, and I, you know, obviously I, I fought the powers that be for quite a while. Meanwhile, the clock is ticking. You've got a small window of opportunity to compete at this level, especially in, in a, a sport like an individual combatter sport like MMA. So you have to, you can't squander that time. You've got to really weigh that out. What What's most important? Um, and at some point, Francis is going to have to step up and get back to fighting and, and doing what he loves to do. And, and the rest of this stuff will sort itself out. But, you know, it's going to take some top level athletes, the top two or three percent to, to rally, to come together and be willing to put their careers on the line, frankly, to, to make change in our sport. It's interesting because we're in 2021 now and we can still see some of the pay that the fighters are getting in the UFC. And it's still somewhat similar to sort of what your era of fighters were getting, especially at the top level. Are you surprised that with this ESPN deal, the fact that the UFC is bigger than ever, that they're not sort of easing up a little bit and letting guys like Francis and John Jones in on the pie a little bit? Or is it sort of a situation where you just think it's going to stick stick around and be the same? You know, I, I think until they have to, uh, they're going to keep doing what they're doing. Uh, you know, they're not going to change their business practices until this class action lawsuit goes through and they're forced to create some transparency and, and change their business practices or until we get the Muhammad Ali Act amended and that federal legislation protects all combative sports athletes, not just boxing. Uh, or we as fighters unify, come together, form a, a guild or an association just like the Screen Actors Guild. The union model doesn't really work because we're all 1099 independent contractors. But we can form an association just like the Players Association in just about every other sport across the board and, and create some minimum criteria and some transparency through the leverage that we have as the athletes if we unify. The MMAFA, Mixed Martial Arts Fighters Association, has a couple hundred members now, but they're all aspiring guys or guys like me that have already been there and done that. And so we need some of those top tier guys like John Jones, John's guys like Conor McGregor, who had an opportunity to change the sport too when he signed to fight Floyd Mayweather and chose not to, chose to include Dana in that whole thing rather than go against the grain and, and again, shine a light on 
dispar- the disparaging difference in our sport versus boxing. Conor McGregor made $100 million in that one boxing match. He's never even come close in his entire MMA career to making that kind of money. And he's still the highest paid MMA fighter on the on the roster for the UFC. So it is what it is. Mm. Just going back to what you touched on before about, you know, age being a factor. It's interesting because that was sort of similar with yourself. Um, I remember reading, I think you spent like half a million dollars battling the UFC and I think they were trying to bankrupt you and you kind of, I think that was when you were angling for the Fedor fight and you kind of made a decision you were like you know what time is a factor um it, it's not worth going through this and having it dragged out so then when you look at the John Jones situation where he's obviously having these public negotiations and it seems like the UFC is kind of like look we're just moving on without you and it seems like he's probably not going to fight for the rest of the year and you know he's a relatively young guy but at some point, that's going to be a factor. How do you see it, you know, playing out in the end? They, they, they still haven't made this Francis fight. They've had ample opportunities. I wonder, you know, what you see as, um, I don't know, some kind of inroads to this situation changing. Or do you think it's going to be similar with you where he's just going to be forced to come back? Well, I, I think at some point he'll come to the same realization I did. And I was 45 years old, you know, 44, almost 45 years old when I, you know, the clock was definitely ticking for me. Um, and the window was closing that I was going to be able to compete at that level. Oh, that was a huge factor. I think you're absolutely correct. I think they were doing everything they could, filing injunctions, anything they could do to get me to spend money on lawyers to keep it from going through and to to keep me from fighting Fedor somewhere else because they couldn't make that fight happen. Um, I think at some point John is going to come to that same realization. He's not getting any younger. The longer he sits out, the more, you know, that fight shape and that genuine, the tools basically, they, they're just not as sharp. It's, it's that simple. So uh, I think at some point he's going to want to do what he loves to do, which is compete. And he's not going to want to sit around. It's going to take more than just one guy like John Jones. It's going to take a whole plethora of those top marquee uh, upper echelon fighters to, to be willing to put it on the line and force the promoters to change their business practices and create some transparency in the sport. So we know what, what's being brought in every single event. How are you supposed to negotiate your, your value in any one fight when it's never disclosed? Nobody knows how much money they make. Now, big red flag got everybody's attention when they sold the company for $4.2 billion. And a lot of guys start paying attention to a little more and then start wondering like, man, I'm, I'm not getting paid near enough. They just made, $4.2 billion off of the company that we helped them build. Yeah, $4.2 billion. And you're right. I think there's strength in numbers. We we saw John Jones, uh, one of the GOATs, and then we saw Francis Ngannou, a champion, and both of them kind of teamed up to go against the UFC in you know public negotiations, and they kind of got swatted away. So I see what you're saying about there being strength in numbers. But just quickly, before we get uh, your thoughts on Ngannou versus John Jones, you mentioned $4.2 billion. You could feel like $4.2 billion with the smoothest balls in your neighborhood, maybe even the world with Manscaped's lawnmower, 4.0, the best grooming tool in the world with its 7,000 RPM of power, the LED light, it's waterproof, the travel lock, so it doesn't go off in your bag. And the performance package 4.0 comes with the lawnmower, 4.0 itself, the weed whacker as well, so you can trim your nose hairs. You've also got the crop preserver ball deodorant, the crop reviver toner, so you can just put it on in the middle of the day and keep your boys smelling fresh, the performance boxer brief, so you got underwear, and the shed travel bag, so you can carry all of that with you wherever you go. 20% off with the code submission. You're going to be like, 
Ring, ring, who's this? It's the money phone because I saved so much money. That could be you. Isn't that right, Dennis? That's right, man. And then why not make $4.2 billion this weekend with my bookie? If you guys go to my bookie right now and use the promo code submission, you could take advantage of up to a $1,000 bonus on your first deposit with the big fights happening with UFC 265. There's really no excuse not to go on my bookie today, bet anything, anytime, anywhere with my bookie and the code word submission. And Cass, I know that right now we're in t difficult times and in lockdowns all across Australia, but there is one app out there that's going to get you guys sorted for whenever the doors do open and that is match point match point lets you know the places that play your local sporting events like the ufc like the olympics like this like the footy like the rugby like the whatever sport you want to check out and my match point will let you know that in a very simple way yeah it's really simple you just jump on you pick your teams let's say you want for example ufc 265 or any mma you pick that it shows you all the pubs in your area it shows what those pubs do what they offer what kind of deals they have how many screens they have whether they actually have the commentary volume on or not you can uh, check reviews you can even uh, you know quickly uh, hit it and then it'll give you directions on your map. Match Pint is arguably going to become your new best friend when it comes to finding a pub to watch any kind of sports, meeting up with your buddies. Click the link in the description below and it'll take you straight there and uh, you don't even have to worry. Match Pint, your new best friend for finding ways to watch the sports you love. Uh, but just I mentioned it before, uh, Ngannou and John Jones. Let's say, let's say hypothetically, the stars align and we do get John Jones versus Francis Ngannou. How how do you see John doing when he moves up and uh, takes on, you know, not exactly a small heavyweight and not exactly a small force in Francis Ngannou? Well, that's it. That is an interesting fight for a whole bunch of reasons. Certainly, it'll be John's first time up at heavyweight and dealing with the bigger guys. And Francis is kind of this new prototype heavyweight. He's not six foot eight or six foot nine, you know, cutting down to to make the the two sixty five limit. He, he's kind of this newer prototype. You know, we've seen guys like that. Frank Mir was one of those guys. Nog was one of those guys. wasn't this massive heavyweight? He was agile, had a lot of technique and a lot of ability. John poses some interesting problems for Francis because of John's wrestling background, and that's the one area where Francis, you know, after the Stipe fight has really been shoring up and spending a lot of time on the mat, kind of making himself wrestle, putting himself in some bad positions and finding ways to solve those problems. So I think that'll be an amazing fight. I don't think John Jones has ever dealt with somebody with the power that Francis Nagano brings to that fight. And uh, he's going to have to rely on his wrestling to kind of take Francis out of that ability to, to stand and, and land huge shots. It's fascinating, yeah, him moving up from 205. He really has built up his frame, John Jones has. Do you think, obviously, the Francis Nagano fight, that's going to be a super tricky one. Do you think he has the same overall success at heavyweight like he did at light heavyweight? Because you're the man that knows the real difference between the two divisions. Uh, I, it's interesting. I certainly think he has the, the skill set and the potential to be successful. You know, fighting those bigger guys, you have to be smart about that. He used to being able to go toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose with anybody at the 205-pound weight class and get away with it, you know. Uh, very few guys packing the kind of power and, and mass that, that these heavyweights are, are bringing into these fights. So you have to skirt around that. You can't go toe-to-toe or nose-to-nose -nose with guys like that. They're going to knock your darn head off. So uh, I think he's going to have to be a little smarter about how he approaches the heavyweights. He's not going to get away with some of the things that he got away with that light heavyweight. Yeah, I was wondering how much how much of a of a change did you have to make to your style 
when you when you you know went back and obviously fought you know somebody like say Tim Sylvia when you were, when you were at light heavyweight for a while you got used to that division and then you went back up and obviously it was a new era with much bigger guys how much did you have to kind of consciously change your style I absolutely had had to uh to change my approach to those guys guys like Tim and Brock I mean they're, they're so big so athletic um finding partners to simulate and emulate them in the practice environment was a huge piece getting guys like Wes Sims to come in who's you know every bit as tall as Tim and and pretend to be Tim basically in the training environment uh you know had John and a bunch of great big guys come in and, and try to mimic uh Brock Lesnar as much as possible too and put myself in those worst case scenarios and those worst situations and find ways to solve those problems. The bigger guys can be more difficult to, to take down, uh, to clinch with and, and control on the clinch. So I had to adjust a lot of things to deal with a much bigger frame, much stronger guy. Um, I want to get an update on the Ali Act from you, but I just want to go back to something that you said before, and that is that, you know, until fighters like Conor McGregor sort of jump on board, that, that would make a real difference. I'm curious, have you heard from John Jones's team about joining you guys and as a part of this uh, legal process with the Ali Act? Or have you heard from Conor McGregor's team at all, or has it sort of still been the core group of guys? No, I haven't heard from either one of those guys regarding the MMAFA, the, the Mixed Martial Arts Fighters Association, or helping us lobby, uh, you know, the Congress and and getting it to a vote. We were very very close to getting it to a vote. Uh, we had over sixty pundits on both sides of the aisle uh, that were endorsing the amendment to, to the Ali Act. We were in the right committee. The lobbyists that the UFC hired did a great job, and, and I'm not sure who they paid or what they did, but they got us thrown out of that committee, which is the original committee that the Ali Act was voted and passed in to the education. They got us thrown to a whole new committee. I think that was to avoid Mark Wayne Mullins, who's the, the congressman from Oklahoma that was spearheading this whole thing. Uh, Joe Kennedy on the on the Democratic side of the House was also endorsing this and spearheading it. They were both uh, held seats in that Energy and Commerce Committee, which is where it should have been voted on. They got us thrown out and sent over to the Education Committee, where we basically had a door knock and start all over again and get signatures and, and endorsers for our amendment to the act. So we're kind of back to the drawing board. Uh, with this new administration, we're, we're looking at, at trying to get it back into Congress, back into the Energy and Commerce Committee, which is the committee it should have been in, in the first place. Uh, they're the ones that passed the original Muhammad Ali Act. So they're certainly the ones that should be ruling on an amendment to that act. So uh, it's still kind of in limbo. Obviously, there's a lot of other crap going on with COVID and everything else, uh, you know, forcing vaccinations, lockdowns and all this sort of stuff. So. Uh, I think all of us have kind of taken a big step back from doing what we were doing. There's not, you know, just certainly in 2020, it wasn't very feasible to, to, to do a lot of door knock and do a lot of uh, politicking and, and uh, hanging around in Washington, D.C. So, um, you know, I think we'll get there. It's going to take some time. Mm. Just for people that don't understand, like myself, um, how important would it be to have someone like a John Jones or a Conor McGregor join the cause? Well, how much, how much would it help? I think it would help a lot. I think we would attract a lot of, of uh, fan attention. And I think guys like Jake Paul, who's poking Dana on a, on a weekly basis via social media 
and pointing out the disparaging difference in what he's getting paid. And, and he's literally a, a, a YouTube. He's not even a real boxer, so to speak. He's, he's a YouTube sensation. So um, and yet he's making more money than any of these mixed martial artists at the top of the list. That ought to rub them the wrong way, in my opinion. It certainly rubs me the wrong way. And uh, and that should be motivation to step up and force some change in our sport, force some transparency, eliminate some of these very exclusive, very rigid contracts. Um, I think those are the things that the Ali Act does for the sport of boxing that we don't enjoy in mixed martial arts. It's a, it's a difficult sport to be a part of. I think a lot of people that watch the UFC, Bellator, and a lot of these events, PFL, um, they kind of see fighters as as people that are quite wealthy and, and get, get into it and end up making a lot of money, where in reality, and you would know this better than most, seeing a lot of the fighters come and go from your gym, it's a very, very difficult sport, and it's very, very difficult just to make a living from it, let alone make a big league, let alone make it, you know, make it to the point where you can even fight for the title. So... Just break break that down for us a little bit, because, I mean, just the other weekend, we saw a fighter who broke out into tears because she won a bonus in the UFC. And that bonus, that whole bonus is just going to go out to pay her bills and make sure she's on the even. Um, how hard is it for these fighters out there right now that are actually living on these five and five, 10 and 10, 20 and 20 sort of situations where you got to pay your tax, you got to pay your coach, you got to pay your rent and you sort of end up with nothing? Yeah, it's a it's a real thing. You're talking about three to five percent of the athletes on the roster that are that are making six figure type contracts. That's a very small number. You know, I think the UFC has close to 300 athletes signed. Most of them are mid and lower tier fighters that they're hoping they can, you know, build and push up there. There's really only three to five percent of them that are like John Jones or or Conor McGregor that are in that top echelon. Uh, that are making six-figure checks on, you know, and still even them, you know, yeah, they're they're making that, but they're what are they fighting once a year, if they're lucky twice. Most of those lower-tier guys are in that same boat. You're only going to get to fight once, maybe twice in in a year, and and you're making twenty, thirty thousand dollars for that fight. I mean, that math is pretty simple to do. You have to fight a lot more than that to to make a lot of money and and be wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. So we're getting high, and most of us are doing this because this is what we love to do. Um, is it fair? No, but so is uh, welcome to life. There's a lot of things in life that aren't fair, but we have the power. They just haven't been organized, haven't been, haven't recognized that we are we're the commodity. Without the fighters, there are no shows. So if we unite and we force their hand and come together and demand some minimum criteria and some transparency in our sport, I think we would get there. But it's going to take all of us coming together. Yeah, 100%. Going back to sort of strength in numbers, like we mentioned before, um, as we let you go, Randy, because we could pick your brain all day, uh, but I have to ask you, you know, with this uh, weekend's title fight coming up, Derek Lewis and Cyril Garn, um, how do you think that one plays out? It's pretty interesting with Cyril being, you know, this young guy only training uh, in MMA since 18, uh, 2018, even though he's had an extensive Muay Thai career. And then you got Derek Lewis, uh, who owns a record for most knockouts in the UFC. How do you see that one playing out? Well, Derek is absolutely a powerhouse. If this guy's uh, going to stand around in front of him and try and trade blows with that guy, it could be a short night for him. 
I think the key to Derek Luce is to tie him up, tie him up on the fence, find ways to put him on the ground and make him make him scramble and make him work from the ground. Uh, standing around trading blows with a guy that, that that's got that kind of power. Um, and just when you think he's exhausted and, and can't do it again, he'll pull it out and, and hit you with a brick. So um, he's an interesting guy, poses some interesting problems. Um, but I definitely wouldn't stand around in front of him. I'd find a way to tie him up, trip him, put him on the ground, uh, and make him fight from there. Well, Grandy, we appreciate your time. And I was going to say, for fans out there, at least a little bit of good news is that you are now available on Cameo. So guys can yeah. jump on, they can jump on and become a, the, a part of the Randy Couture fan club on Cameo. I think you get some cool stuff there because for people that don't know, you write a bunch of stuff and you have a lot of stuff that they can check out. And of course, um, Randy has almost 1,000 five-star reviews, which is expected from a, a legend like yourself, of course. Uh, you guys can do it today at cameo.com forward slash xcnatch. And follow him at um, XCNatch, X-C-N-A-T-C-H on Instagram and Randy underscore Couture on Twitter, where he's dropping knowledge left and right, a really, really deep and uh, interesting post about what Frontline means to him and what it means to people during the pandemic and in their personal lives. I really recommend you jump on his Instagram today and read it. Very powerful stuff from the MMA icon legend himself, Randy Couture. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me on.